It is good to be, uh, to be back with you all at uh, Breen Bible Church North Campus. That's what we call it from our church. So we have so many Breen transplants up here as well. I think there's a new couple, Michael and Ruth Ann, who have recently moved here from our church. They'll be visiting as well. But it's our pleasure to be here and uh, fellowship with you all. We just finished some vacation in Montana. We were able to, we, we like to hit all the national parks. So we finally got to Glacier and do a little vacation in Montana. And figured we might as well drive over to Spokane while we're close, fellowship with the Jones family, and be able to preach the word to you all. It's my pleasure and joy to do that as well. And so we can get into it. You know, so far, 2022 has proven to be a year full of worries. There's war abroad. We have natural disasters at home. Meanwhile, inflation is skyrocketing. A recession looms. And let's not forget the residual worry a lot of people have. After COVID-19, since 2020, many people around the world have been suffocated by anxiety. But it's not like the worry was invented in 2020. Worry has existed since year one. How do you deal with worry? And how do you cure it? It sure can seem like a disease because it affects the body. I'm sure you've all experienced some great trouble in life or trial, and as a result, you couldn't sleep, you had a knot in your stomach, maybe you even got an ulcer. Now, we know worry is primarily an affliction of the soul, but the world has denied the soul, and so their only hope is to treat worry with drugs. And it's, it's a band-aid at best. It's certainly no cure. Often have side effects that can make things worse. So the answer seems fleeting. Can worry be cured, overcome? But the amazing thing is the cure for worry, it's been around for a long time, and it's been made clear to us. It's been bottled, packaged, given to us this cure in a clear way, I'd say for about 2,000 years. And Christ himself offers this cure for worry for free. And we aim to discover this morning from the word. And the only question is, will you be willing to take his medicine? And let's find out. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. My church, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in chapter 7, so I hit Sermon on the Mount a little while ago. This is a special passage for me as well. At the very end of Matthew 6 comes probably the best-known passage in Scripture addressing worrying and anxiety. That would be chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. This is right in the middle of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. In verses 19 through 24, he addressed the rich, making the point that you only have one master. Verse 24, you cannot serve God and wealth. We are to be those who serve God. He is our Lord, our master. We should live like that. Right on that hinge comes the next section, which we're jumping into today, 25 through 34. But if you're there, you'll notice 25 begins with this transition. He says, for this reason, I say to you, meaning in light of the fact, what he just said, that God is your one and only master, what does he say? His message is, do not be worried. Do not worry. Do not be anxious about your life as to what you're going to eat or drink. Do not worry about your body as to what you will wear. It seems as if now Jesus, though, is going to turn a corner and address the poor. The previous section, 19 through 24, he was addressing the rich. And those who are worried, they have their own worries about stockpiling wealth and holding on to all that they have. But the poor, they're likewise worried. But for them, it's about just getting by the necessities of life, food, clothing. But what Christ will teach us is that neither of these should be consuming drives. Both the rich and the poor are prone to put too much focus on self. And whenever you take God out of the picture, whether you're rich or poor, anxiety is bound to result. 
The rich and the poor alike go wrong when they fail to include God in the equation of life. The rich sometimes can live this life as if it's the only life, and they pursue luxuries to satisfy them, give them meaning. But the poor also can live as if this life is the only life, and they pursue necessities to satisfy them. But Jesus here, he really says no to both. Not even the need for food and clothing is a good reason to worry for the believer. Why not? Well, precisely because God is your master. And if he's your master, you also know him as your father, which he will bring to a big point in this passage. He's your heavenly father who cares for you. He's not just the father anymore. If you know Christ, he's now your father in heaven who knows you and cares for you. And it's God's sovereign care for his children that eliminates all need for worry. But temptation abounds to take your eyes off of God. One commentator said this, quote, The rich are tempted to become self-satisfied in the false security of their riches, and the poor are tempted to worry and fear in the false insecurity of their poverty. You have a false security for the rich and a false insecurity for the poor. And that passage, this passage here is going to address that. They both stem from not properly seeing God. And so in this passage, Jesus aims to open our eyes. Now, I have to say, as 21st century Americans, probably the previous verses are more directly relevant to us in the sense that we're all rich today by the world standards. Meaning, I mean, how many of us genuinely have to worry daily for food, water, and clothing, shelter? There are a few Americans who live in genuine poverty, for sure. But I'm going to wager that most of you at home have pantries that are full. You have too much clothes in your wardrobe. You have to give stuff away. This is not our main problem. But that being said, the command from the Lord to not worry, his many reasons for not worrying, and his solution to worry, it still applies across the board. Just because you've gained a measure of security in this life when it comes to food and clothing does not mean you've eliminated all sources of worry. As I'm sure you figured out, even the more stuff you accumulate, now you worry about losing it all. Your worries probably have multiplied. Either way, we, we need to hear this word from the Lord. Worry doesn't go away just because you gain security in food and drink. What, what is the cure then to all worry? Let's hear from him and find out. Let's start by reading this passage, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. You can follow along as I read. It's a long one, but we're going to make our way through. Matthew 6, verse 25, he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what what will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, it's hard. It's a long passage, but it's hard to miss what he's saying because he repeats this central command three times in this passage. Verse 25 is the first. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. The word for worry means what you think it means, to fret, to be anxious, to be troubled. The way this is phrased in the Greek indicates stopping an action that has already started. So very well could be translated, stop worrying. Stop all your worrying. What's the object here? There are two objects of their worries in verse 25, your life and your body. The term for life is pretty uh, broad, but in connection with food and drink, it's pretty clear he's talking about your your physical life, i.e. survival. And don't worry about your body. That's part and parcel with your life. He's talking about physical things, material things. He's talking about some of our deepest worries. I mean, is there a more fundamental worry than living to, to, to die? To live, we need food, water, and clothing. And Jesus is certainly not saying we should not seek food, water, and clothing, but he's saying we should not worry over such provisions. He means this so much that he repeats it a second time the command is issued, verse 31. He says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Now, of course, you care about life's essentials, and that's not wrong. You, you strive after them. You work for them. That's not wrong. But you must not worry about them, fret over them, become anxious over them. You must not seek them first, as we'll see later. Now, verse 31 has a different grammatical form than verse 25. Verse 25 was about stopping your constant worrying. Verse 31, the exhortation carries the force of really just never worrying at all. Just don't worry at all about any of these things. This is a universal blanket command from the Lord to you to not worry about anything. If you don't get the point, third time's a charm, verse 34, he says it again one more time. So do not worry about tomorrow. And to finish, he expands the object of worry into the future. It covers every day in the future. Nothing today or tomorrow merits the response of worry. Jesus is forbidding worry among his disciples entirely here. What he says here is as universal as Philippians 4, 6, which says, be anxious for nothing. Same word for worry, by the way. And so something is going on here. This is a big deal to Jesus. You have not benefited from going through the whole Sermon on the Mount, but if you do so and study the Sermon on the Mount, he covers a lot of ground, a lot of topics, maybe one verse here, three verses here, little bursts on all these topics, But here, he stops for 10 verses on this subject of worry. Three prohibitions. Why is this such a big deal? You might expect him to rail against anger or lust over 10 verses and three prohibitions. But he doesn't. So why has he spent so much time on the topic of worry? Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And the answer comes in his explanation. He is saying more here, which, which is why he didn't simply bark the command to not worry three times and then move on. Worry results from a type of spiritual nearsightedness, a type, a lack of spiritual perspective on what is true. Those who worry, they're, they're so preoccupied with looking ahead, what's in front of them, what's before them, when they really need to stop and look up. You need to look up. If you would just look up, listen to God, trust his word, you would find no good reasons to worry. 
But I think Jesus knows this is especially hard for us being fallen, earthbound creatures. So he's going to give us some glasses to correct our vision in this passage. He gives us here a spiritual vision that we might not worry. And so in this passage, married to these three commands, do not worry, are five reasons for why you should not worry. He doesn't have to explain himself, but he does at length because I believe he knows we need this. His disciples need this. Life will be filled with trials and troubles that will tempt us to worry. We need this word. And I would say that as our worries have probably only increased with modernity, uh, we really need this. So let's give this our full attention now. We're going to try and look up and learn from the Lord next five reasons not to worry as we go through this passage in greater detail. Five reasons not to worry. The first, because life is more than living. Because life is more than living. And we'll explain, but take it back to verse 25. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, this question to those in the world, they would say like, no, life is not more than food. That's like the most basic thing. There's nothing more essential to life than food. Without food, water, we die. The body needs clothing, shelter, covering. In a fallen world, we can't live like we're still in Eden. We need shelter and covering to survive. So, like, what matters more than food and clothing? And Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't worry about food and clothing because there are, there are better things to worry about, like luxuries and pleasures, possessions. Now, his point more fundamentally is that, that there is more to life than living. There's more to life than being alive. What does that mean? It's the Gentiles who have a false view of life. He'll say down in verse 32, it's the Gentiles who chase after all these things. They live as if, as if this is their only life, and so they're just chasing after the, all these things. Not knowing God, they have reduced the meaning of life to this life alone. To them, this life is the only life. You only have one life to live, and so you must preserve it at all costs. You've got to live and die for it, so to speak. And really, I think we saw the same anxious, desperate clinging to life during COVID among those who were just convinced this life is all they got. And that's a rational response. It's just wrong because this is not the only life. Now, of course, you should take sensible measures to protect your life and your body because they're precious. But... The world has reduced man to just merely a biological creature who needs to be fed, watered, and covered. So their most basic goal in life, their, their, their basic goal is just eat and drink. After that, be merry, because tomorrow you die. That's pretty much it. It's like the, the essential needs of the world. But we learn from Jesus, this life matters, but it's not our only life. It's not even our greater life. You do not have one life to live. You're going to have two lives to live. You're not the source of your life or your body. God is the source of your life. He's the source of your body. And then your your body will return to him. Your life will return to him. You'll find a a second life. Now, for believers, though, what is our greater hope? It's not for this life and this body. It is for the next life, eternal life, and the next body, the resurrected body. There's more to life than food and covering for us. God made us. He saved us eternally in Christ. What, with that in mind, what, what are we so worried about? Now, that said, living here below, it's, it's not like God does not care for our practical needs, like this life is then irrelevant. It's not. 
He cares. Jesus is not telling us to not care about our lives or our bodies in this present life. He cares for them. Back in chapter 6, the beginning, he taught us to pray for what? He told us to pray for our daily bread. We pray for what we need each day to live. But as much as we value our lives and our bodies, we must not become absorbed in the affairs of this life. As I'll say again, we'll learn later, we can't seek them first. There's something else we have to be seeking first. But we'll come back to that. But God knows we need food and clothing to live here below. And the solution comes in just trusting him. He, he's the source of greater things. He's the source of our life. He's the source of our body. So can't you trust him to be the source of lesser, lesser things? Food for your life. Clothes, covering for your body. And that's the point. In an argument from greater to lesser, Jesus is teaching us just to, to trust the source of all things, God. We'll return to this thought, but we have a lot of ground to cover, so we'll keep moving. A second reason not to worry. Secondly, because worry changes nothing. Because worry changes nothing. Verse 27, he says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Worry itself changes nothing. It does nothing. Now, just keep in mind, he's talking about worry. He's not talking about planning for the future. He's not talking about prudence. If you learn a great storm is coming, your house is in the path of mudslides, you would be wise and prudent to start filling sandbags, to prepare for the future. That's a virtue in Scripture, wisdom, prudence, demands, a reaction to future concerns. But you would be wrong to grow anxious and fret over what might come. Such worry does nothing to change the situation. Worry by itself. You know, when birds know winter is coming, they don't sit around and worry. They just get up and start flying south. And I'm pretty sure they do so worry-free. They just know what they need to do, and they do so. Jesus is not forbidding provision or preparation in this passage, just worry. He's not forbidding forethought, simply anxious thought. Because worry doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything good. It only does bad things. Now, specifically in this verse, Jesus points out how worry, it does not add a single hour to your life. Right? Many today, they're, they're quite obsessed with extending their lives as long as possible. Again, believing that this is their only life, that they cling to it. They're desperately trying to live as long as possible. And as endless articles pop up promising practices to prolong life, they, they follow them religiously. Right? Avoid overeating. Exercise daily. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Try turmeric. Get plenty of sleep. I think, ironically, most of these lists about how to live longer include avoiding stress and anxiety. But I think chances are people, the people reading these lists are doing so because they're stressed and anxious about getting old. All such worry is futile because it, it changes nothing. God made us, and even more so, he fixed the number of our days. He knows the exact number of heartbeats you will get, and you're not going to get one more. He's fixed the number of heartbeats, and then you're, you're done in this life. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This does not mean it's wrong to exercise or eat healthy. Again, that's part of prudence. Because our lives and our bodies are precious because God made them, and so they are to be preserved and valued. We understand that. But don't worry yourself to death. Like that's all you get when you worry. It actually shortens life. 
When someone's hyperventilating, no one says, hey, stop, you're going to worry yourself to life. They always say you're going to worry yourself to death because we understand what worry does to us. Humanly speaking, worry only shortens life. How many countless studies have observed that, that the anxious live shorter lives? How many drug or diseases we don't fully understand has, you know, one of the main causes is stress or worry, anxiety. Those who are anxious suffer more disease from stomach ulcers to hypertension, which is another irony. The very desperation to live longer robs people of longer life. In the end, worry is a thief. It steals time. It does not add days or hours or even seconds to your life. By worrying, you're not going to change anything. It just steals life in quantity and quality. You're probably going to find yourself also benched in the Christian race, just useless on the sidelines because you're worrying about something and not just doing what the Lord tells you to do. It's futile. Would you ever take a drug that has zero positive benefits, does nothing good for you, but has a long list of serious side effects? You would never take that drug. But how often do we pop the pill of worry? We're staying up late at night. We're pacing around. We're thinking of what's to come, and it does nothing. Don't worry, because worry changes nothing. Now, the third reason not to worry, don't worry, because you don't know the future. Jesus himself draws out this point about the future. We're going to jump down to verse 34. Don't worry because you don't know the future, he says at the end. In his conclusion, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You want just like an interesting exercise? Write down on a piece of paper everything that troubles you right now. And everything that at least tempts you to worry. What are all your temptations to worry? And then sort that into two lists. All the worries that belong to today, put in one column. And all the worries that belong to tomorrow or the future, put in another column. Now we'll safely wager that your future worries are a much longer list. And then if you want to take it further, you can actually keep track of all those future worries the next week or month. How many of them will will never come to pass? They'll never be. Again, I would bet most of them. I mean, having lived through Y2K, some of you know, I vividly remember what has to be the, the greatest global worry that never came to be. I mean, you remember, people literally thought on the stroke of midnight, January 1st, 2000, planes would be falling out of the sky and everything would shut down, traffic lights would stop, it'd be chaos. Nothing happened. It's a huge worry. Nothing happened. Young people have no idea what we're talking about, but they can, they can look it up. But no one, no one knows the future. You can't see tomorrow. Therefore, you should not worry about it. Jesus says, just do not worry about tomorrow. He gives two sub-reasons here. He says, first, tomorrow will care for itself. He's personifying the future. Let the future do all the worrying. Let, let, let tomorrow stay up late, pull out its hair, and pace around. You just sleep easy. You wait till tomorrow. As for you, sleep easy. Can't you just trust God for the worries of tomorrow? His grace is sufficient for all we need. We know this. We believe this. We would say that. His grace is sufficient for all we need. But, you know, he gives you grace one day at a time. He gives you grace for today. What you need for today, you'll get. Tomorrow's grace will wait for tomorrow. Trust him. Will you trust him that when you wake up tomorrow, there will be enough manna on the ground for you to survive? Will you, do you trust him for that daily bread? You really pray for it and trust him for tomorrow's needs. And second, some reason, verse 34, each day has enough trouble of its own. 
Now, he's not saying, you know, don't worry because you've got enough to worry about today because you shouldn't even worry about today. His whole point is do not worry really ever. But you're likely going to have plenty of trouble each day, and certainly that will tempt you to worry. You're going to have your hands full battling off today's temptations to worry. So why would you tire yourself by fighting tomorrow's battles? The battles of today are plenty for us to deal with. Why are you trying to engage in tomorrow's battles? You're going to wear yourself out. And that's how you lose your fight today. You have to learn, in in a real manner of speaking, to live one day at a time. Again, nothing wrong with planning for the future. There's prudence in that. But you're living one day at a time. Tomorrow, it's it's like tomorrow is behind this thick veil. You you think you know what's going to happen, but you can't see through the veil. You don't really know until you get there. You may have expectations, but you don't know for sure what's behind tomorrow's veil. Maybe you'll die tomorrow. We just have no idea what's actually going to happen tomorrow. Now, you can spend all day today worrying about what's behind tomorrow's veil, but it's so futile. Just look around. You've, you've passed through today's veil. Now you're in today, and there are enough troubles and trials of today to deal with. Why don't you just focus on that? That's what he means. You need all of your energy to defeat today's temptations to overcome today's trials. You focus on that. Without worry, trust God while doing what is right today. Tomorrow is just going to have to wait. Now, number four is a big one. We'll get to this fourth reason not to worry, which I think is the heart of his point here overall. A fourth reason not to worry, because God is your Father. He's not just God to you. He is your Father. Again, I think it's the biggest reason not to worry here that we have God now who is a Father in heaven to us. This time, Jesus will argue from the lesser to the greater, showing that, look, as God cares for lesser creatures, it certainly is going to care for greater creatures, namely us. We go back to verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Hey, first, first points to the animal kingdom, specifically birds, and just see how God providentially provides for them. He, he never gave any animal a command to till the soil, to work the earth. Rather, they would find all the provision they need to live just, just from the land. They just find it in nature. In fact, how much do birds get fed from our labor? We till and sow and reap and you know, plant, and then birds come along and just eat our harvest. This past summer, we, we have some berries in our backyard that we planted, and I had to put some bird netting over it because birds would just swoop in and take, like, all of our fruit. But you know what? They'll be fine even if we cover up a little bit. God made them to seek out only their daily bread, their, their daily worm. That's all they care about. And he will provide just that. Just like back in chapter 5, verse 45, Christ said that God causes the sun to rise and the good and the evil. He causes the rain to fall on all. Likewise, God feeds the birds. How can God get credit for feeding the birds? I mean, they're going out, flying out, finding food. But he gets credit because he's the creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus knows birds have to fly out and find their own food. But God ensures they will do so through the systems and natural cycles he upholds. He made and he upholds. Birds live in God's world. They're under his care. They're fed daily, and they don't worry. 
And his point comes to verse 26. Are you not worth more than birds? Are you not worth much more than birds? To God, yes, you are. You're made in his image. Birds are not. And if you're in Christ, you're his child. Birds are not. He, he never calls, he never references God as the heavenly father of the birds. He says he's your heavenly father. This is a term of endearment for his children in Christ. And the obvious point is that if God providentially cares for birds, ensuring they have their, what they need for today, and they're lesser creatures, will he not much more care for you? Yes. So don't worry about today. Don't worry about your food, your daily bread. That's his point with food. What about clothing? He's going to go to the plant kingdom to talk about clothing. Don't worry about clothes, verse 28. He says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Now back then, not for us today, but back then clothing could be a major source of worry because Many people only had the pair of clothes that they were wearing. The clothes on their back was all. It was a commodity traded, a source of wealth, a currency. Clothing was very valuable back then. And so if, if, a, if a person lost his outer garment, his inner garment, his clothing, he'd be in real dire straits. In the winter, he could freeze without his outer garment. But still, Jesus says, even in that culture, don't worry about your clothing. Such a basic necessity for survival. Don't worry. And he points to the, fil- uh, the lilies of the field, that the wildflowers that would have been peppering the hills of Galilee, most likely preaching the Sermon on the Mount, springtime, flowers all around them on the hills of Galilee. And just look at them. Just look at them. Every one of us recognizes, especially the natural and God-given beauty of flowers. We get that. That's why, that's why the floral market in America is valued at $12 billion. It's, it's big business. Yet these flowers exert no special effort to clothe themselves. They don't do anything. There's no toiling or spinning or weaving. They don't do anything to look so beautiful, to clothe themselves so splendidly. Solomon, as Jesus references, he had to work hard. He had to employ, uh, really not him, but he had to employ an army of servants to create his royal robes. Creating fine garments back then was a serious workforce uh, job. It was an incredibly labor-intensive process. And I think it might be one of the biggest things we take for granted today, just cheap, abundant access to clothes. Well, we're happy to just throw them out. It means nothing to us almost. But even still, who is responsible for the glorious garb of flowers? Verse 30, God. God so clothes the grass of the field. Again, it's his world. It's under his care, his providence, his systems. And then Jesus makes the same point. He says, since you're, you're much more valuable than flowers to God, will he not much more clothe you? Can't you trust him for that? And the point comes by showing how transient the life of a flower is compared to our lives. And their beauty is real, but they can fade overnight. One scorching wind from the north would, would wilt all those flowers in a day. At which point, they're only fit for kindling, which... By the way, is my biggest problem with flowers for like Mother's Day. You spend all this money and they're gone after a week. But you got to do it. But if God would see to it that flowers would still be 
clothed beautifully, though they're so short-lived, get the point. So would he not much more clothe you, care for your needs? You think he doesn't need, uh, know you need food and clothing to survive, to live? He cares more about you than flowers. And that's the point. Don't worry. Because God, who is your heavenly Father, he cares for you more than you know. Maybe that's something you just need to hear biblically if you're in Christ. He, he's your Father in heaven. He cares for your life, this life and the next, so much more than you know. We take for granted how much he cares for our lives. He knows your needs. He will provide for your needs. Look down at verse 32 by contrast. Speak, still speaking of you know, food and clothing, he says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see that in verse 32. He knows what you need. He's not surprised. He's omniscient. He knows what you need. Just like back in chapter 6, verse 8, when he's teaching on prayer, he says, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. We do not pray to inform God of our needs or desires. He knows. And it says in verse 33, all these things, the things you need, they will be added to you. They'll be given to you as you seek him first. God will care for your needs. Verse 32, it's the Gentiles who eagerly seek all these things, meaning they're not striving after God. They don't know God. They're they're striving after food and clothing. They're seeking them first because they're living for this life. They're living for self, and they see nothing more. This life is the only life they have, they think. Their basest, strongest desire is merely survival. And for that reason, they're often burdened with anxiety that they're so afraid of dying that they will do great evil just to live a little bit longer. They will cheat, steal, rob, kill just to prolong their physical life another day. So desperate and anxious and worried they are to live. And it's not like their gods will help them. Their their pagan gods don't feed them, don't help them with their daily bread. They're not providers. Some Hindus in India, they give daily offerings at the shrine of the monkey god Hanuman deep in the forest. Their god does not provide food for them. Their god takes food from them. Yet in reality, you know where the food goes. Who's actually eating all the food offerings they bring every day? It's the monkeys. Like a horde of monkeys coming from the forest every day and eat all their food that they offer to their gods. You know, with gods like these, it's no wonder that they're just hopelessly burdened with the the pressures of life with no real hope. Now, I want to clarify something here. Jesus is not telling us not to seek these things, food and clothing, what we need for life. We do seek them, and we must. If you misunderstand what he's saying, you might get the impression that you don't even need to work. Just kind of wait around for food and clothing to fall from heaven. God provides, right? He said he'll give us what we need. I'm just going to sit, wait for manna to fall from heaven each and every day. That is not the promise here. The point is, just as God provides for the birds, he will provide for his children. But how does he do that? He provides for the birds through providence and secondary causes. For us, this would include our own labor, work. Jesus is prohibiting worry, not work. Just clarify that. Even the birds must work. They must search. They must dig. They have to labor to find their food. Yet God's providence ensures their ability meets opportunity so they get their daily bread. And this is the same for us. His providence will ensure our ability meets opportunity to get what we need. The birds are not used as an example of idleness, 
but freedom from worry through dependence on God as their provider. I might say that again. The birds are not used as an example of idleness, but freedom from worry through dependence on God as their provider. We're not being promised manna from heaven here, as he says he'll, he'll feed us and clothe us. But it's like Deuteronomy 8.18, which reminds us that it is God who gives you the power to make wealth. And so knowing that God has commanded mankind to till the ground, if you want to eat, you better work. So much so that Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, the one who does not work should not eat. But the point is we can work without worry like the bird, just trusting God will provide as our ability meets opportunity through his providence. This gets us to the heart of Christ's message. You look at verses 31 through 33, you can see how the terms worry and seeking are used in parallel. What you worry about is that which you seek first, that which you desperately seek. And look, it's not a problem for us to seek after food and clothing, what we need for life, but it is a problem for us to worry about these things, or i.e. to seek them first. That's what the Gentiles do. And they're living for self. They're living like this is their only life. But for us, it's different. We now have God, who's our Heavenly Father. He made us. Now he's bought us with a price, the precious blood of his son. He's redeemed us. Now we're even more valuable, you might say. And now we no longer live for self. If you're in Christ, you're no longer living for self as number one. Christ is our Lord. We live for him. We know this life is not our only life. And so then it's no longer for us to seek first or worry about anything in this life. We're to seek him first and put our eyes on his kingdom. And this, I think, culminates and comes together in this last reason not to worry. It will come to a head here. Number five, don't worry because you live for something else. We'll get to the culmination of his message now. Because you live for something else. Getting back to verse 33, really that, the punchline, you might say. But he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That term seek is the same root term, verse 32. The Gentiles are seeking after these things. But here it's further intensified by the adverb first. Seek first. Devote yourself to this. Devote your striving and your strain to this. Not worry about food and clothing, but pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness. That should be your consuming drive in life. Not simply trying to live one more day, but seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. This is what we now live for. Kingdom refers to the exercise of God's rule. In salvation, we're made members, citizens of this kingdom, though it's yet to come in its fullness. We are members of this kingdom. We want to see, though, God's kingdom reign expressed more fully even now, although the kingdom is in fullness still future. We want to see his kingdom reign expressed in this world. And so we seek the exercise of God's rule over our lives, First, just through obedience, by walking according to his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We now love him, so we should want to keep his commandments and see that the kingdom reign and will of God expressed in our daily lives. We also uh, seek the exercise of God's uh, rule in the world through evangelism. To see more people added to this kingdom, we're to live, like he taught in chapter 5, as salt and light 
just witnessing the gospel of Christ that others might come to know him as Lord. So we are to seek first God's kingdom in how we live, and we also to seek first God's righteousness. You know, the righteousness that was imputed to us by faith when we believed, we're granted this perfect righteousness, now we need to live it out. We need to express it, work it out. He worked salvation into us, now we need to work it out, live it out. Jesus, back in chapter 6, you know the Lord's Prayer. He taught us to pray for our daily bread. But you realize, only after we pray, what? Your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray that first. We're seeking that first. Not daily bread, that comes after. We're to seek the things of the Lord first. This is an essential part of discipleship and just a consequence of being redeemed. Everyone has some purpose in life, whether they'll identify it or not. They've got some deep driving desire for why they are alive. It's behind all that they do. And for the Gentiles, we've already seen, it's just to stay alive. Their, their basis desire is survival, just to live one more day. But, you know, you, you have actually very little control over that in this fallen world, which is why they worry so much, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. You could be the richest, safest, healthiest person and still die tomorrow. And that's why if you're living for this life, you will never find the cure to worry. There is no cure for that. You should be worried because you have no control whether, whether you will live or die tomorrow. You will be anxious forever. And this is why they're plagued for worry. But again, the, the thing is for us, survival is actually no longer our number one purpose in life. Like it's, it's no longer number one. Why not? Because we already died. Like we're already dead. If you're a Christian, you're already dead in Christ, right? Don't you know Romans 6, 8? We have died with Christ. We're already died. Romans 6, 6, your old self was crucified with him. So if you're here this morning in Christ by faith, your old life, B.C., is dead and gone. You can put a tombstone over it. You died. You, your, your life was over. Jesus died to purchase you, to purchase your life, to redeem you, with his own precious blood, which means you don't even belong to you anymore, right? Your life is not your own. Now we are called slaves of Christ. He, he owns us. So this also means every heartbeat you get after salvation is his. You're on borrowed time. The life you have now after salvation, it's, it's meant for him, for his kingdom purposes. It's to be used for him. Is this not part of the call to faith? Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. When he says pick up his cross, you realize back then the cross was not a little cute piece of jewelry. It was an instrument of death. It's like pick up your electric chair and follow me. That's what they understood. And it's not just a means of suffering. It's a means of death. His point is if you want to follow me, you have to die. You have to die to self and follow Jesus as Lord, which he clarifies in Mark 8, 35. He says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And that's what saving faith really means. What is true saving faith? It's just a total surrender of your life to this Lord. He's the only Savior, the only one who died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay the penalty for your sins. Only he can save you from the wrath to come and grant you eternal life. If you're here this morning still chasing life here below, 
surrender to him, submit to him, repent, turn to him, believe, and he'll grant you a new life, free from worry and concern. When you believe in him, it it changes how you see everything, because with new life comes new eyes. You gain new vision. Your eyes are opened, and you you learn we didn't just die with Christ. It is true we died, but we also came back to life. You just went through Ephesians, I believe. So were we not also, Ephesians 2, 6, raised to new life with him? And this new life gives us new vision for what is true. It brings into focus both worlds and both lives, this world and the next world, this life. Oh, yeah, and and there's a next life. Concerning the future now, we know we are secure. In Christ, by grace, we know we have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you, 1 Peter 1, 4. Our undeserved place with God forever is guaranteed. It's secured by him. So we can say we can live with confidence as Paul did, 2 Timothy 4, 18. He said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will safely bring me to his heavenly kingdom. Paul wrote that when he knew, he knew he was about to die. Most likely behind tomorrow's veils or one of these next days, he was going to be executed, and he was. But that was not, not a cause of concern or worry because that's just entrance into the eternal kingdom. And he knew that passage was secure. He would wake up in the kingdom. With new eyes, we can see clearly and long for the world to come. But that means we also can see clearly how we ought to live in this world, how we ought to spend this life now redeemed. And that is by faith, trusting in the promises of God while just giving our lives to serve Christ. Galatians 2.20, a special verse where Paul likewise says, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I mean, however many days we have left in the flesh, however long we live, we're just going to live by faith. Not by sight, not by things seen, but by things unseen. Things we know to be true by the more sure word of God. And hence, we are then to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. We're to devote our new lives to work, uh, to, uh, rather to worship, to walk, to witness, all for his name's sake. This is, this is what we do now as Christians, who we are. Unlike the Gentiles, our number one goal is not simply to stay alive. We know this life is fleeting. All life will end in this cursed world. Everyone's going to pass through that final veil of death. This does not mean we hate this life or squander it. No, we cherish our lives and our bodies, especially being redeemed. We're now to use them for God's glory. We sensibly strive for food and clothing while trusting God's providence to provide. But we just can't cling to this life anymore like it's all we've got. We can't seek the things of this life first anymore. At the end of the day, even birds die and flowers fade. This life will come to an end. You need to learn to accept that right now. I've already died. I'm just on his time now, and that frees you up to have no worries or concerns at all. But we know by faith that however many days we have left written in God's book, he'll care for us. You see, you're going to give me another 200 days? I know all 200 of those days he will care for me. 
what do I have to worry about? We don't know the time frame, but we are called to live each day, one day at a time, just trusting him, living sensibly, righteously in this present wicked age, but with his kingdom in mind. And this is the very mindset that frees us from all worry. This is the the cure to worry. If you can just seek the kingdom first, view life, this world, with a kingdom, heavenly, eternal mindset, you would find no legitimately good reasons left behind to worry, to become anxious, to fret, to fear. Again, let's clarify, this does not mean we are entitled to a trouble-free life. As he adds in verse 34, astutely, each day has enough trouble of its own. To the contrary, we know we're going to suffer in this life, doubly so now as believers. Part of our discipleship, this cross-bearing, does include suffering. Which means, in God's providence for his children, as he, he seeks his ultimate goal to make us more like Christ, this means there might be days where we are without food and clothing. Didn't that happen to Paul? He writes in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, his many sufferings, and includes on many occasions he was without food, water, and clothing. I mean, trouble will come in a fallen world. But that, the point is that still doesn't give us a reason to worry. Seeking the kingdom first gives us perspective, even to life's troubles. If we are deprived of what we need, well, we are to act responsibly while trusting God to provide. He does so through ordinary means, sometimes through extraordinary means. We may suffer great trials, but even that is not a reason to worry because we know God is working for our good. He's causing all things to work together for our good. Even the, the, uh, the evil in this world, he turns to, to good for his people. Those who love him, who are called according to his purposes, and that purpose is to make us like his son. We know, like Paul likewise said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, he said, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And it's, it's always true, without exception, that when someone is worrying, it's because they're too occupied with looking at things seen. They've lost sight of this eternal weight of glory. It's not in their mind. They're consumed by things seen. But you need to look up. So, look, if God has ordained this day to be my last day because of, of drought or famine or war or disease, so be it. I mean, what is that to me? I already died. I've already come to new life. I've already been spiritually resurrected. We await the future resurrection. Now we can say with Paul, to live is Christ. And then to die is gain. Like, this doesn't sound like it's a bad deal for us anymore. Death is no reason to fear or worry, and that means nothing else is. Kind of even sounds like I have a reason to rejoice. And that was the case for Paul. Writing in Philippians, he didn't know if he would live or die during his first Roman trial. But he said, look, this desire to depart and be with Christ is very much better, he says in Philippians 1.23. He'd be happy if the Lord calls him home, happy to go. But he says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, what does that mean? It just means more fruitful labor. Kind of sounds like, you know, win-win. Life or death, there's no reason to worry on either side. We're redeemed. Look, I know in a sense this all can sound quite radical, but faith is radical. Faith in Christ, true saving faith, is, is a radical thing. And to the world, this sounds totally crazy, spending your whole life in light of the unseen. 
realize they do the same thing. They believe by faith that nothing happens after you die. There is no judgment. They don't know that. They're choosing to believe that by a type of faith. And so they will live this whole life based on that faith to their destruction. But our faith is based on the more sure word of God. What can we say? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, we know Christ is the wisdom of God. He's the power of God. We know there is a God. He has set eternity in our hearts. There's more to this life. This, this life is not all there is. This world is not all there is. We know there will be a judgment. Salvation is only found in Christ, and it's only received by faith in him. That faith is a total surrender. And so you get to that point to lay down your life before him as Lord and Savior, you find the cure to worry. That's where it is. The cure to worry is found in this surrender to Christ as your actual Lord and God as your Heavenly Father. And then the more you daily walk by faith, you experience. It's one thing to know where the cure for worry is. It's on that shelf over there. It's another thing to daily avail yourself of it. You must daily walk by faith in him to experience the cure for worry, which means we live by faith and then we walk by faith. It's not enough to believe. We must daily walk by faith. That's how you can be free from worry, knowing the peace and, con- and contentment which enables you to be used for his kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a believer, but you still struggle with worry, with fear, with anxiety. And maybe you totally agree with what the Lord says in this passage. You get it, you understand it, but it's just it's still hard to get there and functionally experience freedom from fear and worry. If that's the case, I can probably tell you why. I think Jesus diagnoses that problem. He tells us in verse 30. He says in the middle, you have little faith. That's the problem. You have little faith. You may have real faith. You may have real saving faith. You're a true believer. But the problem is you just have a little faith. And so if you're seriously struggling with worry, this is likely the, pro- uh, the cause. You just have a little faith. The answer for you, like this applies to all of us. Who has perfectly formed mature faith? Not a single one of us. So the answer for all of us to daily experience more and more peace and contentment is to grow in this faith. Faith is meant to grow. That's something every believer needs to perpetually do. Take encouragement. You know, Jesus had to tell us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You know why he had to tell us that? Because he knows most often we don't do that. Like, that is not our nature. And with our flesh, which we still have, we do not ordinarily seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What we must be told daily. We must walk in this faith daily. That's what needs to change. And again, there's good news. First, it only takes faith the size of a mustard seed to save someone. Your faith can be genuine, though little. And second, we're in good company because all of Christ's disciples were guilty of little faith at the beginning, right? Four other times did Jesus use this exclamation, you have little faith, and every time it was toward his own disciples. They all started out with real but little faith, which is why they worried. But just as the faith of those disciples grew from saplings to cedars, so can yours. How does faith grow? Above all, first, pray. Pray like the disciples in Luke 17, 5, where they said, Lord, increase our faith. It's a dangerous prayer because he usually, usually uses trials to do that. But if you want to grow, you pray, Lord, increase my faith. You pray like the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 
at 9.24, where he says to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. Pray like that. Cry out to God to increase your faith. And then you need to avail yourself of all the means God has given you to feed your faith. Primarily, renew your mind with God's word. Set your mind on things above. Saturate your mind with God's promises. The Spirit will use these to increase your faith and give you an eternal perspective. We're picking on Paul. We'll, we'll do one more. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Such a key verse. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and you all have, right? If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And there it is again. You're dead. You need to live according to your new life. This is in perfect conjunction with Philippians 4.8. You know the verse 6 and 7. Anyone here struggles with worry, you probably memorize Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. You get all that part. But don't sleep on verse 8, which tells us what to do with our minds to overcome that worry. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. You have to go to Christ for this daily spiritual vision. Let him fix your eyesight that you see these two worlds and two lives in proper perspective. If you don't want to worry, all you have to do is die. Or should I say, realize you've already died in Christ. You've already conquered death in Christ. You've already risen to new life in Christ. And now you just await eternal life in Christ. And so what is there left to worry about? We sang it this morning. You, you know the cure. It's just, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And so will you, will you trust in him and believe in him each and every day? Let's pray we do so. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, that is our prayer this morning, that you empower us by your spirit to just lay hold of Christ. You sent your Savior, the Son, to us, for us, to die on that cross, to rise from the dead, to pay for all our sin debt, to redeem us, to purchase us, and we thank you and praise you for this work. In your grace, you opened our eyes that we might come to Christ and die and be resurrected. The same power and spirit that resurrected Christ has given new life to our souls. We, we've laid hold of that by faith. We praise you for that as well, yet we're still flesh-bound and earth-bound. And, and like Martha, too often worried and bothered about worldly things. But I pray you help us this morning. Convict us and remind us daily to just look up. We must be governed by this, this heavenly, eternal eyesight and mindset to know who we really are. We've died. We've been crucified with Christ. We don't even live anymore. It's, it's him that lives in us. And we now get to use the rest of these lives for your kingdom and your glory. That, that is a blessing. It's a joy and a privilege. Why would we ever worry about getting to be used for your kingdom in this life? And we, we, we thank you for your grace that's been given to us. Help us again to just daily remember it, walk in light of it, and exalt you as we're free from worry. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.